This is Primal Screen, a weekly radio show airing Monday evenings on Triple R. Primal Screen is about movies, from the ones on the big screen to the ones you stream. Hope you enjoy the podcast version and feel free to get in touch via the Primal Screen Facebook page or the Triple R website. Welcome to this evening's show of Primal Screen. I'm Stuart Richards, filling in for the wonderful Flick Forward this evening. Joining me tonight is the incredible Dr. Eloise Ross, who is a lecturer in film at Swinburne University and a curator at the Melbourne Cinematheque. Eloise, thanks for joining me. Hi, Stuart. It's so nice to be doing the show with you. Yes, it's been a while since we've been on air together. I know. I think we counted down with the equally wonderful Paul Anthony Nelson, the highlights of 2022, didn't we? Yes, and I believe two of those films may have been mentioned uh, in that show are going to be mentioned today, perhaps. Oh, good. Yeah. Stay tuned. Uh, Yeah. (laughs) Uh, On tonight's show, Eloise will interview Dr Janice Lorick, lecturer in screen studies at the University of Melbourne. Janet has has recently published an exciting book titled Provocation in Women's Filmmaking, Authorship and Art Cinema. We will then turn to a recent example of another provocative woman in film and the art world, Nan Golden, who was recently the subject of documentary All the Beauty and the Bloodshed. We'll be joined by artist and lecturer Dr Frances Barrett from the University of South Australia as we take a look at this exciting documentary. As you listen to us chatting about these films, please feel free to hit us up on our social media channels and leave a comment. Just search for Primal Screen on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Before we jump into this week's content, Eloise, what did you make of the Oscars last week? Were there any surprises for you? There were a lot of surprises. I was sort of, I had to work during the day and then I was catching up on everything later. But I was shocked that Tar won nothing and actually probably telling on myself a little bit, but I was shocked that Top Gun Maverick, I think only won for sound. I was sure it was going to get a couple more accolades. As you'll remember from last year's highlights show, Stuart, it was (laughs) one of my favourites. Anyway. Yes. (laughs) But there Uh, were a few omissions, weren't there? There were quite a few omissions. Uh, I was surprised that, all Quiet on the Western Front won so many. Uh, it is a very good film, uh, but I was quite surprised that that was the main alternative in the evening to everything, everywhere, all at once. I think my, two of my favourite winners were Sarah Polly for Women Talking, mm-hmm. um, and I believe that might come up later, perhaps, in the discussion with Janice, uh, and also for Jamie Lee Curtis winning. I was very, very happy she won. Um, Someone who has really made her career on genre cinema, um, uh, you know, getting that recognition is wonderful. Um, So now let's turn to our first interview uh, for the evening. Uh, You are listening to Primal Screen on Triple R. Dr Janice Lorick is a lecturer in screen and cultural studies at the University of Melbourne and has a new book titled Provocation in Women's Filmmaking, Authorship and Art Cinema, 
that is published this month by Edinburgh University Press. The book offers a new critical perspective on the female auteur that considers her place in the avant-garde tradition of provocation, with chapters focusing on the works of Catherine Brie, Jennifer Kent, Claire Denis, and Athena Rachel Zangari, amongst others, Provocation in Women's Filmmaking promises to be an exciting new book that makes some essential critical interventions in the world of film and feminism. Hi, Janice, and welcome to Triple R. Hi, Eloise. Thanks so much for having me on the show. It's really exciting, and I can't wait to read this book. Um, but before that, get into some of the juicy details with you now. <laughs> Um, so looking at your previous work and your research interests, you've been really invested in and around this topic of women's filmmaking and things like provocation and violence and pushing the boundaries for a while. Why did you write this particular book? Oh, that's, yeah, that's a great question. Thanks, Eloise. Um, yeah, I know I am, I am very interested in the dark side, I think, of, of cinema, um, you know, in, in my research. Of course, I love all types of films. Um, but in terms of uh, why I wanted to write this book and, and how I came to write this book, I mean, I suppose that I was quite interested, you know, some years ago I was, you know, observing and having conversations with people that, um, you know, women in contemporary art house cinema often don't get called provoc provocateurs by film critics. I mean, there are obvious exceptions, like people like Catherine Belay, who you just mentioned, and mm -hmm. sometimes Claire Denis. But I just noticed that, you know, whenever the Cannes International Film Festival rolled around or the Venice International Film Festival, there would always be, you know, a big scandal or something like that. A film would get booed or, or a director would do something. And quite often um, that would circulate around particular male auteurs in, in many cases. For instance, people like Lars von Trier, before that people like Gaspar Noé, Michael Haneke and things like that. And I just got to thinking that, um, you know, I, I kind of wondered why uh, women were often not slapped with this label, which in some ways is a super reductive label and often like a marketing label. But I just thought, well, why not? Because, I mean, of course, we know that many women um, do actually make uh, quite transgressive, sometimes challenging films. But often what happens is um, marketers or film critics sometimes slap a different type of label on these works. Like they might say, you know, this is very tasteful, sensitive filmmaker. And I even saw people like, um, you know, Jane Campion or, or Claire Denis being described as kind of these tasteful, um, sensitive filmmakers when, when they make some of the most perverse films I've ever actually seen. Um, so I, I just got really interested in kind of exploring this idea of, of why, um, why we don't necessarily think of this idea of controversy and challenging cinema and pin it to female authors as much. And then I just wanted to really dive in and actually take a look at some films that I think really do engage with this, you know, tendency, if you like, of, of making challenging work as part of, you know, an art house film tradition. So yeah, that's kind of, that's kind of the backstory for it. Yeah, that's really great. I mean, it's, it almost sounds like there's a stigma against the word provocateur or provocative that it, you know, people don't want to associate it with women, maybe, or, you know, it's too ugly or, or something of a term. I mean, uh, 
Yeah, I mean, I, I absolutely agree. And, and, you know, I'll, I'll come to you and you, you can finish what you're saying. But also, I think it's just, I think it's just a, a, a challenging word in, in this day and age in general, you know, we live in a world where provocateur can mean anything from like a, a brave artist to like a, 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 a conspiracy theorist on social media. So, so I think that's one reason why uh, it doesn't get taken up perhaps as much. Yep. Well, I was going to lead into a question about, I mean, how do you define the parameters of what is provocative? Mm, I mean, there's a few different ways of doing it. And when I started on this project, that was really one of my first jobs, because of course, it can go a few different ways. Um, For me, my, um, my big sort of encompassing definition that I like to work with is that a provocative film is a film that essentially denies enjoyment. So, you know, when we go to the movies, we go, we have this sort of expectation to be entertained on some level. And I think there's reasons for that. You know, it's an entertainment medium. Um, We expect particular emotions of enjoyment on some kind of level, or at least a certain expectation that we're going to feel something uh, of some kind when we watch it. I think a provocative film or a film that, you know, provokes us is a film that doesn't give us the enjoyment that we expect. So it might be a film that, for example, uh, has no catharsis. You know, there's a really interesting book by Nikolai Lubecker called The Feel Bad Film, which is a great title for a book, and I found it super interesting. And he talks about films like Lars von Trier's Dogville, as being a film that denies catharsis like it takes you to the end and the ending is um, one that actually denies the emotional release that you want and it gives you a different emotional release that you that you don't want to have I won't spoil that film but suffice to say it kind of ends in a in a pretty grim explosion of violence um, and the other type of provocation of course could be something like witnessing you know ugly images um ugly sounds graphic images um even something like boredom uh can be a form of provocation in a film because yeah it's it's not necessarily enjoyable quote unquote it's not necessarily uh the expected emotion that someone might want to have in a viewing experience now of course there's always exceptions like you know I think many many people listening are probably probably like oh but I love to be challenged I love to feel unsettled by movies and of course that's part of it too but in terms of what I think a provocative film is I think it's a film that denies enjoyment in a nutshell um so why do you enjoy them (laughs) Yeah, that's that's a good question. And I actually do write about this because I when I was writing the book, I thought oh, I'm going to have to kind of grapple with that sort of paradox, really, which is like, why would anybody find them interesting? Because being kind of intellectually interested is an, a form of enjoyment, too, I suppose. Hmm. I suppose. Um, well, as I said earlier, you know, I am interested in in, I guess, the dark side of, of cinema. That's sort of something that's been a, a tendency of my work. I've, I've done work on violent women in films before. But I think what I find really interesting about cinema and, and also just about the arts in general is that, you know, the arts exist to kind of exp- explore the gamut of human experience, um, including, I think, the extremes of human experience. I mean, obviously, we want to see joy and creativity and utopian imaginings and things like that but I think it's really important that our art and our cinema 
does allow us to kind of imagine our nightmares, really, or not even necessarily our nightmares, but the awkwardness of our lives or the, the things that are disappointing or don't follow trajectories that we want. I guess what I'm saying is I, I believe that cinema is a really important place where filmmakers and audiences go to confront extreme things, dark things, uncomfortable things. And I noticed that I, I, I do that too. You know, I, I really do like it when a film challenges me, makes me uncomfortable because, you know, I, I think that it's a way of thinking about things. I think it's a way of having a conversation about things. And whilst I understand that some creators provoke simply to get attention, I think that discomfort is such an important feeling to have because it, it you know, provokes us to think and to to have conversations about our human experience. Yeah, absolutely. I agree with you. And I think, I mean, there are some filmmakers who you talk about in the book that we'll come to in a second who do this really, really well and can kind of balance provocation, as you say, with not necessarily like entertainment, but um, I don't know, pleasure in some sort of sense. But I wanted to ask, and correct me if I'm wrong, about... Um, the the reception of women's provocative um, provocative women's work shall we say sorry I'm tripping over my words here but there's a tendency in culture to receive work made by women or made by anyone really that kind of sits outside the realm of comfort as obscene and you know a lot of work made by women that does kind of challenge things and push the boundaries is labelled obscene and kind of ostracised from our view and from society. Do you see this as a really kind of widespread problem, shall I say? Mm, yeah, I think that's a really good question. And, uh, you know, there's a there's a lovely, um, you know, ridiculously jargony phrase that I sometimes use, uh, you know, the, the hermeneutics of suspicion or this immediate kind of stance of suspicion that I think is sort of become quite common nowadays about about approaching all types of media whether it's you know quote unquote art cinema or tv or 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 stuff on the internet which is just sort of this um kind of initial stance towards films or tv that there might be something problematic about them it's like oh we're looking where's the where's the problematic thing here um I want to I want to find it and I'm gonna tweet about it and make my spicy hot take about it and and it's sort of an interesting one because um because on one hand like I think it's great that people are critical of media and are sensitive to the ways in which media promote ideas or might have representations that yeah are are quote-unquote problematic or do propagate ideas that aren't necessarily the ones that we ethically or morally agree with so on one hand I think yes great be critical of of media that's an important thing that we should all have but on the other hand I I guess because I'm such a lover of cinema and, and art um I also wanted want to bring a bit of um willingness to consider what the work is doing and to entertain the possibility that actually there's a reason for the discomfort. Um, There's a reason for the transgression and look, there may not be, you know, there may not be, you might take a look at it and maybe, yeah, it is, it is problematic. But I think, you know, for example, someone like Catherine Bouet, for example, the uh, French author who made films like Anatomy of Hell and Fat Girl, you know, 
she became quite famous, you know, about 20 years ago for showing really explicit sexual imagery in her movies. And of course that got attention. But at the same time, I think she wanted to make a really sincere comment about the way we as society think about women's bodies. And in many cases, what she was trying to say is that, look, you know, we're a society that thinks women's bodies are disgusting and gross. And your reaction to me showing you women's bodies kind of proves the point. And so I guess I, with writing this book, I just really wanted to reintroduce, you know, the consideration of what this discomfort, what this shock, what this transgression might actually be doing, um, you know, be before we necessarily sort of condemn it. Let's just take a moment and think about it and think about the work it might be doing for us. There's a, you introduced the chapter of, uh, where you write about Jennifer Kent, who is a wonderful Australian filmmaker, and Isabella Eckloff, who, this work I'm not familiar with, but you introduce it um, kind of with the approach of them uh, having a, a, like a mantra on not looking away. And that's almost what you as for writing this book are kind of asking of the reader and the audience is to not look away from from work like this you know Catherine Brier's work we have to accept it and learn from it rather than just say this belongs kind of on the edges yeah I mean I think for certain I think we should embrace a whole range of feelings that art can bring to us mm -hmm. On, on the other, I mean, on one hand, of course, if someone doesn't want to watch something because of certain reasons, they might find particular content difficult. I'm not, I'm never going to say, oh, you must, you know, you have to consume this in order to be, you know, a, a correct cinephile or, and so on and so forth. But no, I do absolutely, I, I do think that it's important to think about why women might want to make a particular type of representation. And that chapter that you're referring to, so Jennifer Kent made The Nightingale. People might remember there was a lot of controversy about the scenes of, of sexual violence in that movie. Um, and Isabella Eckloff, pretty much within a few months of The Nightingale coming out, also made a film that contained that kind of content and, you know, showing it quite graphically. And I remember there were all these opinion pieces that came out, you know, in the New York Times and in European presses and in Australia kind of saying, oh, my gosh, what does it mean when a, a woman, a woman director has a, a scene of sexual violence in the movie? Or does that, you know, does that force us to reconsider what it means to show this? And I just thought it was so interesting that that kind of the question had to be asked, you know, what does it mean when a woman actually shows this? And what I argue in the book is that, well, actually, there's a long feminist tradition of this in art. For example, the, the artist Anna Mendieta made a very famous um, photography series where she posed as a, as a victim of, of sexual violence. And so films like The Nightingale and also Isabella Eckloff's Holiday are actually part of a, a quite a long-standing feminist tradition of asking viewers and consumers of art to actually confront things that are really challenging. And, um, you know, Isabella Eckloff actually says, you know, I want to show the stuff in women's lives that's swept under the rug and that's hidden. And, and unfortunately, uh, this experience of violence is one of them. And these two directors have made the choice that they wanted to actually show it and to and to invite empathy and to invite thinking about this experience for women even though of course it's incredibly difficult content to watch 
Yeah, but that's uh, just a way of thinking. Cinema is this really powerful tool that can help us kind of move through moments in our lives and move through culture and kind of try and understand the world around us. That's, to me, where I see your book fitting in this conversation about how important it is to allow cinema to tell our stories. Yeah, absolutely. And, and you know, it was so interesting when I was writing the book, you know, as I was writing it, there were other controversies erupting as I was trying to, you know, get it finished and send it to the publisher. Like I remember um, Mamuna Dokure's film Cuties. You might remember there was a huge controversy about that film. It came out on Netflix. She's a French Senegalese filmmaker and it was um, advertised with a, with some some imagery uh, you know, it's about young girls and it was advertised with some imagery that actually sparked the director to be kind of targeted in like a, a conspiracy theory campaign that she was part of like, you know, a, an elite elite circle of people that were promoting the abuse of children. And it was just, it was so intense. And and I remember she wrote such a beautiful um, response to this in the Washington Post. And she said something to the effect of, you know, some people find my film about, you know, these young French Senegalese girls, some people find my film uncomfortable. But if you talk to young girls about their lives today, you'll find that their lives are uncomfortable. And for me, that really summarised so much of what women filmmakers are trying to do with these works. You know, they're actually trying to confront something about the experience of being a girl or being a woman or being in a woman's body or moving through the world with the experience of a woman's identity uh, and trying to communicate that and the full gamut of, of that. And, and I wanted to, to really investigate that in the book for sure. Yeah, well, it sounds like you will just have to keep on writing books, Janice. There's more responses to films like this and people are making more important stuff. Um, there'll be lots more to write about and lots more for us to read about. Well, yes, I hope so. I'd love to I'd love to have more conversations about it in the future, perhaps with you, Eloise, too. <laughs> That'd be good. So I can't wait to read your book, Janice. It's coming out in a few days. If you've just joined us, we've been chatting with Dr. Janice Lorick, lecturer in screen and cultural studies at the University of Melbourne, about her new book, Provocation in Women's Filmmaking, Authorship and Art Cinema, released this month. It sounds like a wonderful read and details of the book's release and its launch event will be out soon. Thanks so much for joining us on Triple R, Janice. Thank you. We are now joined by Dr. Frances Barrett, uh, who is a lecturer in contemporary art at the University of South Australia. Her research focus is performance, installation and curation. Recently, her research has pivoted around the modalities of listening and touch, with her works taking the form of immersive sound environments, live performances and performances with museum and gallery collections. Last year, her work, Neatus, was presented by the Australian Centre for Contemporary Art. Frances, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me, Stuart and Eloise. And uh, could you tell us a little bit about what Neatus was about? Yeah, I guess um, Neatus was largely around the experience of listening and, and thinking about creating an environment in ACCA in which audiences can go, enter into and, and ex, um, really sort of uh, experience an intense kind of sonic environment. Um, Neatus 
was, is, is a word that sort of um, refers to the passage from the external part of the body into the internal part of the body. And um, meatus is your ear canals, your nasal passages, as well as your mm. urethra. So there's a multitude, the multiplicity of meatus across the body. And I sort of took that to th be thinking about how listening isn't just with the ears, but can be a sort of entirely embodied uh, experience of not just listening through and hearing with the ears, but sensed um, throughout the body. And you have a new show uh, coming out at the National opening on the 1st of April. Yeah, so I'm also one of the um, artists that will be presenting at the National. Um, I've been curated um, into the Carriageworks site, but then the National's across three other sites at the MCA in Sydney, um, Carriageworks, Art Gallery of New South Wales, and also Campbelltown Art Centre. Fantastic. And thank you for joining us tonight to discuss this wonderful documentary. We continue this evening's theme on provocative women by taking a look at Nan Golden and the film All the Beauty and the Bloodshed. Golden is a renowned photographer and activist. Her groundbreaking work turns the lens onto her own life and her chosen family of Boston and New York underground queer, queer scenes, featuring artists, activists, drag queens, and anyone else on the fringes of society. The film features several slideshows narrated by Golden herself. This alone would be enough material for an exciting documentary, but its history is also interspersed amongst Golden's contemporary work with advocacy group Pain, Prescription Addiction Intervention Now, as they call attention to the Sackler family's involvement in the OxyContin crisis in America. Her small group of activists calls for leading art galleries and institutions such as the Louvre and the Metropolitan Museum of Art to stop, to stop accepting philanthropic donations from the Sacklers. The film is directed by Laura Potras, director of the Edward Snowden documentary Citizen Four, which won an Oscar, and the film Risk, which looks at the life of Julian Assange. The film won the Gold Lion at the Venice Film Festival, being only the second documentary producer to do so. The film was nominated for the Academy Award for Best Documentary, and I am a little gutted it didn't win because Nan's acceptance speech would be particularly spicy, I think. Uh, Francis, what did you think of the film? Can I just preface, I'm no cinephile, but yeah. an extreme fan, you know. Yeah. Um, this film was just... It absorbed you in all the multiple stories that it told. So you didn't um, get a biopic. You didn't get kind of a straight-up documentary. Rather than you got this extremely complex and warm and sad story of Nan Golden, her practice, but also her activism that extended, you know, through the AIDS crisis um, and you know, largely documenting credible artists and performers and then uh, with, as you were sort of talking about, with pain and their advocacy against uh, or fighting against the Sackler family. Mm. One thing that um, I keep on coming to, as I was trying to write the notes for this film, one thing I kept on coming to how was how her politics and her art were one and the same, where we get this long history of her photography but then we also get these very public displays of political action, 
such as um, throwing all of the, the prescriptions um, at the Guggenheim and the die-in at the Met. And those are almost like performance art pieces in themselves. Yeah, which were directly taken or sort of inspired by ACT UP, yep. which was, um, you know, a major force in the activism uh, against the US government, US government's failure to support mm. um, uh, particularly the gay community and people affected by, by AIDS. So mm. Nan, who lived through that and was participating in that through you know, 80s and 90s has drawn from that history and that legacy and that creative form of activism and kind of applied it to the current situation against the opioid crisis. Um, but also Nan Golden's practice herself, you know, I can't help but think that all through it from the, the late 70s when she started, um, it, it was about documenting her life and it was about the communities that she was part of it was a it was like diaristic um but also sort of auto theoretical almost you know it's very much an embodied sort of um tracing of her life and and her intimate relationships so i feel like this film also reflects and emerges from that too and, and the deep collaboration with poitras hmm. uh, eloise what did you think of the film i really loved it. I found it so moving and so absorbing, as you say, Francis. And I remember when I'd sort of heard about this film, it was framed, whether it was just because I wasn't looking hard enough or whatever, but it was framed in the media, I thought as just a film about Nan Golden taking on or, you know, trying to fight the opioid crisis. And I remember thinking that's so important, but why can't I have a film about Nan Golden, like more of Nan Golden? But it is, um, and it's so powerful in that way. I mean, uh, there's the she she talks about the um, the article she writes she wrote for Art Forum at the start of the film, which was sort of you know launched her activism to respond to this opioid crisis. And you can read that online. And in it, she says. I believe I owe it to those affected by this epidemic to make the personal political, which is evident throughout all of her work and all of, you know, everything in this film that kind of narrates what Nan Golden did and has done in her life relates back to activism, to fighting, to fighting to have um, kind of people who might seem on the fringes or people who are dying of AIDS um, to give them, you know, not to give them voices in a sense, but to just show them, um, show them living and show them deserving of love and compassion. And that's all here. And she carries that through to this work that she's doing today. Um, Eloise, one point that you wanted to bring up was the classification of the <laughs> film, which is very interesting that it was it received an R classification uh, for high impact of, uh, of nudity and sex. Um, the Office of Film and Literature classification also notes the strong impact uh, of the themes discussed, violence and language. But it is particularly around nudity and sex that got it the R rating. What do you make of that? I when it when the R rating was announced, I remember at least in my small circle a little bit of kind of furor about it. Like, what's that about? That's gonna um, that's sort of, is this an insulting 
um, classification? Is this going to withhold it from certain audiences who might benefit from seeing it? And when I had a look at the descriptions, as you say, the breakdown of what the classification is for, I found it very interesting that drug use is listed as moderate impact. Mm. And I mean, in terms of sort of cinematic depictions of drug use, yes, it is moderate, but the the topic that the film is sort of engaging with is not moderate drug use. You know, mm. it's very kind of severe and very serious. Um, it's true the nudity in sex is high impact, but at the same time, those things are so brief. And I just find it very uh, conflicting that that it's given an R rating, especially when so much of the film and so much of Nan Gold's work is about fighting censorship and about how you need to, I mean, art is a form, film is a form, photography is a form that can um, educate people or, you know, show people that there are other ways and that the government or whoever institutions are in charge are kind of, you know, sometimes not giving you the whole story, that art is for so much more than this. It was a little disappointing, I suppose, to hear that this got an R rating. I don't know what you think as well. Well, for me, it almost mirrors the point in the film where they have the exhibition uh, presenting art and work by um, those suffering from HIV, um, including uh, David Washington Roberts, um, I hope I pronounced that correctly. Um, and and that's um the that you know that that censorship and that fuel around that it almost looks like a trace of that in the um the classification of the film francis what do you think i think the extreme horror of this film was in the scene where you could see the faces of the sackler family in the court case like i think that for me was the most harrowing moment and i don't feel like um censorship um, for this film, like, I don't feel like any of the other topics uh, deserved an R rating, I, I don't think, uh, or what was depicted, apart from mm. the impact of and the, the sort of severity of the um, impact that the Sacklers had on these people's lives. I mean, it's all in context, right, and everything that is listed as high impact is given context in this particular film, and I think it you know, Nan Golden talks specifically about how, you know, education is uh, is going to save lives. Mm. I feel like this film is part of that kind of, um, part of that process. Um, Francis, what uh, role do you think photography plays uh, in this documentary? Well, I think Poitras has um, harnessed, you know, really the beauty of, of Nan's work and the intimacy of Nan's work. Um, I think with photography, when you think of Nan Golden and photography, uh, it's not so much just the image that's taken, but you imagine the circumstance in which she was part of the parties, the conversation, the um, experience of after when she was beat one time, the, the process of healing, um, so it's it's very much woven into the fabric of her life. And so Poitras has sort of woven Nan's uh, photography, particularly the modality of slideshows. So Nan Golden's very famous for the sexual for the ballad of sexual dependency, which was presented as a slideshow with often pop tracks and things going on behind it. Um, so you did have a sense of moving image in these um, 
series of works. And so Poitras has kind of integrated that modality into the film. So therefore Nan and her work and I think her sort of the spirit of what she does is very much imbued in the filmmaking process. For example, those incredible scenes of landscapes and twilight and then she's talking about her um, overdosing on fentanyl and and her, the darkest moments of her um, addiction to um, oxycontin. Mm. The, the the photography gives such a immediacy for that time period, um, where it almost feels like you know they were taken yesterday or something mm. in terms of um, all of these really famous people that are that are captured um, in the in the slideshows. You are listening to Primal Screen on Triple R. I'm Stuart Richards, your host for the evening, and I'm joined by Dr. Eloise Ross and Dr. Francis Barrett. Uh, Francis, uh, what is the connection here between um, these very famous queer figures, John Waters, Divine, Cookie Mueller, and Nan Golden? So they were all part of that downtown New York scene. Um, in the late 70s through 80s. Um, I, I think largely Nan was a friend of Nan, uh, sorry, of Cookie Mueller's, who was a, a writer, an actress, um, and actually recently had a, a book published as well, um, which is just a, a republish of one of her books. Um, but yeah, so I guess with um, her relationship with Cookie was very intimate. Cookie features a lot in her portraits and her photography. Uh, and then also, I guess, Nan's photography documents um, the, the last few years of her life, of Cookie's life, um, and I guess her death, uh, where she um, died of um, AIDS-related illness. Mm. So I guess um, looking at Cookie Mueller's life, you show the sort of um, incredible radicalism of that time, that space, it shapes a history of New York and of a creative scene of a, a wonderful community of, of artists and writers and performers and filmmakers. Um, but then also, I guess, the impact that um, the epidemic had on that community. Eloise, the uh, one thing that I, I think the documentary does really well is capturing the vibrancy of this era um, and like you're living at the Bowery and all of these crazy parties and just sort of how much fun they had while also leading very difficult lives. But then also th th these slideshows. And I think Cookie Mueller is one figure in particular that's captured here is just how devastating this period was. Um, what, what do you make of those, uh, of those moments in the doco? I love the how vivid everything is in this documentary in terms of creating a sense of what New York was like at the time from archival footage and from Nan's photographs. And it just goes to show how alive her work is, that, you know, there is a sense of the vibrancy of their community just through the still photographs that she shows uh, or that are included and it's really wonderful and I know that New York doesn't exist anymore um, but the fact that it can kind of be concocted mm -hmm. speaks to the well, the importance of 
New York as a creative kind of environment for not just Nan Golden, but, you know, all of the other artists that she was sort of engaged with. There's a bit where, and I think that they actually interviewed him for this documentary, I can't remember his name, but you might, um, who the very first gallery curator who took Nan Golden's art, where he saw a box of like 20 of her photographs and says, these were just photos of people living their lives that there is something kind of intangible and alive about that comment Mm. because if there are people living their lives, it's not someone, you know, it's not still life, but it's actually life. That's Mm. what is powerful about her work. Yeah. The uh, one thing that I think the documentary does really well is this constant cutting between Nan's, Nan Golden's life, this period um, in New York but then also the contemporary activism. Um, and, and when we, we get into this AIDS epidemic period of Nan's life, that kind of that cross-cutting between these periods takes on that political urgency where you, you can see how ACT UP, as you mentioned, Frances, how ACT UP really shapes Payne's activism and how so much of her art is, is heavily imbued with this politics. Um, another moment that I thought was, um, that we mentioned before was the courtroom scene, um, all on Zoom, of course. Why was that so powerful, do you think? I mean, because we get some really vivid imagery in this film. You know, we have Nan's own photographs of her own faces. She's healing from this abuse. You know, there's some very deeply personal tragedies in Nan's life that are mentioned, but that that are meant that she mentions, but this courtroom scene on Zoom, there's something about it that is just very different from the rest of the film. Eloise, what do you think? It's really cold. It's a really cold sequence. Like the rest of it has um, the, I guess, a sense of Laura Poitras and Nan Golden wanting to give a give a portrait of a community that works together. And this, and it is assisted by the fact that it's all on Zoom because this happened, you know, at the height of COVID, I'm imagining, Um, you know, there is this kind of double remove from the people in the Sackler family who are being kind of confronted with all of the death that that the opioid crisis has caused. I think it's Nan Golden says something like you, are going to says to the family members you are going to watch us but you are not going to learn from it or you are not going to feel bad like she predicts it and you mm. can almost see that in their faces that's another reason why this seems so cold I think mm. one guy kind of looks a little bit sad but the others don't it's almost as though they're just completely like behind a glass of no emotion. Mm. Francis, what do you make of that moment? I think filmically it draws together the image and sound. And so um, all throughout the the movie, right, Laura and Nan, you don't have a talking head, rather you just have audio recordings of their interviews. So it forges a very intimate listening experience. Hmm. The Zoom courtroom is largely taking place where you can hear the statements made by victims or their families. And so you're hearing, again, these audio recordings of these 
tra traumatic stories. So you're already attuned to listening very carefully to these people's voices, like to Nan's voice. And then when you hear these recordings of 911 calls and all of that, it's just very devastating. And then as you were saying, Eloise, you just are met by these very cold images of the Sackler family listening. One of the Sackler families don't even turn on their Zoom, so they're not even watching. So mm. they refuse to witness any of these statements, right? But as, as an audience, you can understand that one person, like you're just seeing, as an audience to the film, you're just seeing this cold image of, these, of this family that um, holds so much power and wealth and devastation in their history. And um, I think that is in stark contrast contrast to the images of nans that have been through the film which are so intimate and beautiful and human you know and then you i just feel like there's there's something about the inhuman faces yeah. of the sacklers and mm. then the qualities of the portraiture of nan but also portraits use of audio recordings of voices and the, the zoom recordings of 911 recordings and stuff i don't know yeah no i i agree there, there is the coldness there but also i think there's also a slowness to the scene I think so much of the documentary is really, there's so much in there. There's like the rhythm is really quick and it's cutting so quickly. And there's so many threads that are weaving together that I, I think Poitras really weaves together well um, at the end. All of the, the, the various kind of themes of trauma and joy and, and heartache and tragedy all kind of come together really neatly at the end. And I think it's through the that courtroom scene in particular um, and a few other scenes with family towards the end. Um, that, yeah. yeah. The scene where um, uh, I, I feel most affected by the scene where um, Nan's own mother is reading out the quote from her sister's diary and yeah. the Conrad quote talking about, you know, life as being droll and a crop of irritation irreversible no inextinguishable regret regrets yeah and I feel like that haunts the courtroom scene you know and, yeah. and then it's kind of um you know regret about what's happened I think I mean Laura Poitras knows that and knows the power of it because the mother reads it out and then we get a close-up of the of it written down and so she's enforcing it because we as a as a spectator need to kind of know how important this is and it does mm. work yeah yeah you have been listening to triple r uh tonight we've been discussing all the beauty and the bloodshed it's currently 7 57 tonight on primal screen uh eloise spoke to dr janice lorick on her research on provocative women in film Eloise and I, uh, and I were also joined by Dr. Francis Barrett for our discussion on All the Beauty and the Bloodshed, directed by Laura Poitras. All the Beauty and the Bloodshed is in limited release now. Eloise, thanks for the great chats tonight. Thanks so much, Stuart. And Francis, thanks for your insight into the provocative queer art world. <laughs> Thank you, Stuart. <laughs> Huge thanks to Lou Clay for his help with social media and, and the podcast and the wonderful Kyle Chapman for organising tonight's show and for pressing all the correct buttons so that you can hear us all. 
I've been Stuart Richards, and that concludes our show for this evening's Primal Screen. Thanks for listening to Primal Screen, a weekly radio show airing Monday evenings on Triple R. Hope you've enjoyed the podcast version and feel free to get in touch via the Primal Screen Facebook page or the Triple R website. 